Hello and welcome to the August 2018 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo. This week I'm covering um, at the beginning two subjects I've always been interested in, which is refusals of visit visa applications and the power to deprive people of their British citizenship. Please don't judge me. Both came to public attention back in August over the summer due to media coverage. From there, we're going on to cover the more specialist realms of procedure, including a few significant guidance cases and something on awarding costs against the Home Office, which is also a uh, an interest of particular uh, a subject of particular interest. I'm going to cover a few developments in human rights and EU law, including Brexit, before finishing on some interesting new judgments on human trafficking. So, starting with the visit visas, we've got a post entitled. What's going on with UK visit visas um, by Ian Halliday, looking at the rash of stories over the summer of uh, apparently very well qualified professional people um, who've been invited to the UK to attend festivals and events um, being refused visit visas um, despite those invitations. And there were, there were several of these. There was a book festival where several people were refused, um, several people were refused at WOMAD and and so on. And, um, and we, we think that Essentially, the entry clearance officers are, are failing to apply the rules correctly. They're, they're failing to really judge and ask themselves the, the appropriate question, which is, is this person um, really going to bunk off, basically, once they get to the UK? Um, and instead of really thinking about that and thinking, well, actually, this person's a professional author with a reputation in their own country. They're not likely to just disappear once they get to the UK. Um, entry clearance officers are instead just getting confused and looking at the paperwork that's been submitted and basically picking out the kind of standard reasons for refusal that we see about not being sure of the source of income or not having enough money in the bank account or, or something of that nature. And it's basically confusing um, process and procedure with the actual substance of these cases. Um, we also updated at the same time um, our, an old post on visit visa refusals and whether you should go for an appeal or a judicial review. Um, it's an old post of ours, but it's been on the website for quite some time and it's still popular. We've updated that with reference to a couple of new tribunal cases, Charles and Behinga. Um, and essentially, you've got a right of appeal in, in some situations. It's not entirely clear where the, what those are, unfortunately. And this is because the right of appeal is based on human rights grounds. So when do you have enough of a human rights connection to the UK that you might have a right of appeal? If you're visiting a spouse, is that enough? If you're visiting a nephew or a niece, is that going to be enough? How about a sibling or an adult parent? And it's all a bit fact sensitive and it's very difficult to advise clients, frankly, in those situations. If you're not sure that there's a right of appeal, then you can go for an application for judicial review. It's a less good remedy, I think, quite quite clearly in a visit visa situation because the judge is limited to reviewing the lawfulness of the decision as opposed to making their own mind up about what the, the right outcome of the case should be, uh, which is what, what happens in an appeal. And also there's a, there's a danger, um, and it would be pretty rich for the Home Office to be arguing this in any given case, but it, there's a danger it can still happen. There's a danger that um, you could be accused of going for a judicial review when actually the remedy should have been an appeal. Um, because judicial review is a remedy of last resource and so on. So have, have a look at that post. We've updated it um, if you're sort of grappling with these kinds of issues. Moving on now to deprivation of citizenship, we saw uh, an interesting case in August called Aziz and Others Against Secretary of State for the Home Department, reference 2018 EWCA Civ 1884. Now, this is the course of appeal judgment in a case that was in the tribunal known as Ahmed, and it involves the, um, I think they're really referred to as the Rochtail Grooming Gang, who have been deprived of their British citizenship on the basis that their crimes were so heinous. 
Now, nobody is suggesting that these people are nice. They, they, they've done some really grim, awful, awful stuff. Um, but I think there is a legitimate debate to be had about whether deprivation of citizenship is really the right way forward. Because you know, historically, deprivation of citizenship was really about national security issues. It's about disloyalty, um, t- tests like that, as we've seen in some, some later case law I'll cover in a, a later update. Um, it's not really ever been about just ordinary, really bad criminality, which is what's happened in this case. And we have seen a bit of a trend towards treating the deprivation of citizenship test as if it's essentially a deportation test for migrants. And, you know, those are two very different things to my mind, exile of a citizen compared to deportation of a migrant. Um, The same words uh, are there for the test for both. It's conducive to the public good. But arguably, there are some very different considerations that ought to apply in the citizenship scenario compared to the uh, migrant-facing deportation scenario. We've also seen the legislation amended several times over the years to make the power, um, basically to make it easier for the authorities to deprive people of citizenship. And there has since then been a, a corresponding rise in the number of deprivations. Um, it's still a relatively small number every year, but it does seem to be growing. And we also saw um, there was a, a significant spike in the number of nullification of citizenship cases, which is a slightly different legal process. Um, that's now been ruled unlawful by the Supreme Court. And so it seems likely that there's going to be yet further deprivations because cases that would previously have been processed by the Home Office as a nullification are more likely now to be processed as deprivation, which does at least carry a, a full right of appeal. So, so it's, an, it's an interesting case and I, I think a controversial one. So, so do watch out for it. And um, I think it's probably a good idea for practitioners to make sure that they are uh, properly gemmed up on deprivation issues. And if you do want to do that, we've got a course that um, covers all the case law for you. Okay, moving on to a very interesting presidential guidance note on costs in immigration appeals. Now, this is a subject that um, was being close to our hearts at Free Movement for some time. We've got an e-book um, all about costs in immigration cases, both judicial review and appeals. And we've followed the limited number of cases that we've seen coming out from the tribunal on this. Um, we also published a write-up of an unreported case called Awua Number no. 2, uh, which was now several months ago. We were surprised that that case wasn't reported at the time because it was the two presidents of the first tier and upper tribunal who decided it. But it seems in hindsight as if um, the decision was taken rather than to report it, to incorporate what it said into this new presidential guidance note on costs. So the principles that we saw from OWU number two, which were rather good principles, um, I I think, uh, are reflected now in this, this new presidential guidance note. And don't for a minute think that there's any kind of presumption that if you win your appeal, you're going to get an award of costs, because that certainly isn't the approach of the procedurals and it's not the approach of the presidential guidance. However, um, there's a much clearer steer now for immigration judges that if the Home Office is pursuing an an unarguable case, if they they should have conceded a case and it's clear they should have conceded the case and they haven't, then a litigant is entitled potentially to their costs of having to um, take that case. So it's very interesting. And in those cases where it's really baffling what the Home Office has actually done in a given appeal and why they haven't conceded it, or in cases where the Home Office does concede it, but very late in the day and only after the legal costs have been um, incurred, then you know, it's, it's, it's very important to look at this guidance and think about making an application for costs. 
Okay, also on costs, um, an interesting case and an interesting write-up from Christopher Cole. Now, the um, the pronunciation of this case eludes me, I'm afraid. It's um, Shrestha and others against Secretary of State for the Home Department. It's called Hamid Jurisdiction, Nature and Purposes, reference 2018, UKUT 242 IAC. Now, some of this is, is fairly unremarkable. We don't need to go over it. It's basically a metaphorical flogging for some immigration lawyers who seem to have behaved um, particularly incompetently in this case, and there's no real dispute about that. But there's a sort of throwaway remark um, by the president in this case, which is picked up by Christopher Cole, and which he he really um, is quite, I think it would be fair to say, um, exercised about, which is where the judge suggests that the um, client had been working illegally, and that was probably where the fees were coming from for the case. And it said that it was apparent that the solicitor was unaware of the obligations of the, the solicitor's firm under money laundering legislation, whereby money received from clients, which is considered to come from illegal earnings, must be the subject of reporting to the relevant authority. Now, Chris's take on this is that that is just plain wrong, in fact, because there is a very clear defence in that kind of situation where a lawyer has provided what's referred to in the guidance as adequate consideration, as in they have actually provided a legal service in exchange for the fee. Um, so it looks rather like the, the statement of law in the tribunal cases is simply wrong. So if you're interested in these issues, because of course um, illegal working is now a criminal offence, um, has been under the Immigration Act 2016, uh, and it wasn't necessarily an offence prior to that, um, in all circumstances, should we say, without getting into it too much. But if you're interested in those issues, then do take a look at Chris's post. It's dated the 1st of August 2018. Quick mention for another procedural case. This one's AZ Error of Law Jurisdiction PTA Practice Iran 2018 UKUT 245 IAC. This is PTA, stands for Permission to Appeal. And we don't need to spend too long on this. It's basically the upper tribunal getting upset that the first tier had granted permission in a case on on an issue that the upper tribunal thought was unarguable. They thought it was so unarguable that they didn't deal with it in the upper tribunal and on appeal to the Court of Appeal were told off for that. Um, So the upper tribunal was quite upset that permission to appeal had been granted on it. It hadn't been pleaded by the parties and um, first tier judges are admonished and told that they really shouldn't be granting permission to appeal on issues that aren't pleaded. Okay, dealt with that one, I think. Um, Another case to mention, Mansour, Immigration Advisors Failings, Article 8, 2018, UKUT 274 IAC. And this is is quite an interesting one. So Mr. Mansour had been let down by his immigration advisors and by the Home Office because um, he had an outstanding appeal. I think I'm getting this summary of the facts right. He had an outstanding appeal and he then made another immigration application and his advisors failed to tell him that that further application was invalid because there was already an appeal pending. And that's the effect of section 3C brackets 4 of the Immigration Act 1971. Um, And they failed to withdraw the pending appeal when they were instructed to do so. The Home Office then incorrectly informed him that his fresh application was a valid one and was being considered when actually it wasn't and it had been invalidated because of the pending appeal. And as a result of this mess, he ended up with without leave for several months. And this then led to him being turned down in an application for indefinite leave to remain on the basis of 10 years of continuous lawful residence. Um, The OISC had investigated and had concluded that the advisers failed to provide competent and diligent representation, but the first-tier tribunal had dismissed the appeal anyway. 
the upper tribunal, this is um, President Lane in this case, was more sympathetic and basically held that um, although you couldn't create an Article 8 uh, private life out of circumstances that wouldn't otherwise have existed, you know, the, the, the basic facts were that he had been here for that amount of time, the Article 8 considerations were the same, and the only reason why he hadn't qualified was the fault of the advisor, and therefore the appeal should be allowed. So it was a good outcome for him, but bear in mind, you know, the, the it's quite clear what the bad advice was there. It's not it's not an ambiguous situation, should we say? Sometimes in immigration law, there's a right answer and a wrong answer. Often there isn't. There was actually a wrong answer in that situation. And also there was a, a formal complaint to the OISC who did investigate this as well. So it stands out from some other cases that I've come across where somebody's basically moaning about previous representation, previous advice, and they may be right that the advice wasn't great, but they haven't complained. And it's not necessarily crystal clear that it was actually the wrong advice. Sticking with Section 3C, which doesn't come up that often, to be fair, um, there was an interesting press report, and unfortunately there's no reported judgment as, as such because this was um, an interim relief application and there is no formal judgment as far as I can see. Um, but this was a case where one of those migrants who's being caught out in the whole um, tax declaration controversy around paragraph 3225 of the General Grounds for Refusal um, has been basically left in limbo um, by Home Office pause in decision-making. And because they don't have a right of appeal, Section 3C doesn't extend their leave, and therefore, although they are pursuing a legal challenge, that legal challenge is a judicial review application, and it doesn't have the effect of automatically extending their leave. And the effect of that is that if you, if you, if you find yourself in that situation, you don't have a right of appeal, you're pursuing judicial review, you've been refused, you say wrongfully... Unfortunately, you're here illegally in the meantime. You, uh, it's a criminal offence for you to work. Your employer is going to have to sack you because they'd be subject to a £20,000 fine potentially. Um, and of course, it also endangers your access to the NHS and other things as well. Now, in this case, on the facts, the migrant concerned um, was particularly poorly, I think, and needed access to the NHS and applied for interim relief basically to um, regulate her stay and to, to, to be considered to be here lawfully. Um, in the meantime, while she was bringing the challenge. Now, it sounds like the judges made a great play of this being exceptional on the facts and so on, but arguably the, the precedent this sets is a much wider one because uh, if we go back to the introduction of Section 3C, it replaced something called VOLO, the Immigration Variation of Leave Order 1976, and that was introduced because of a, a case back in 1976 where it was recognised that um, somebody didn't have their leave and therefore didn't have a right of appeal um, if a decision on their case was made after their leave had uh, notionally expired. And ever since then, so for decades, it's been the consensus that you know if you're challenging a Home Office decision, then you really ought to be allowed to stay lawfully in the meantime, um, because otherwise it, it effectively preempts the outcome of the of the legal challenge. Because what's the point in getting permission to stay and work if you've had to give up your job and lost your job? Um, months or years previously um, anyway. So it, it's an interesting one. I'm sorry that we can't um, point you to an actual judgment as such, but um, as I say, it was press report and it's, it's certainly worth thinking about applying for interim relief in those kinds of cases um, in future. I'm just going to mention a couple of posts by Gabriella Batiga that we put out in August um, on spouse visas, basically, spouse and partner visas. So um, this is a two-parter. First of all, how to apply for a UK spouse or partner visa where Gabriella goes over the details, formalities, uh, mandatory grounds for refusal, discretionary grounds for refusal, and so on, covering various different scenarios, basically. 
And then um, sort of follow up as well, which is what are the financial requirements for UK spouse and partner visas? And she goes into a great deal of detail covering what the specified evidence is, how to calculate the required earnings and savings and so on. And um, you know, we, we, we're basically, we're putting this together as part of a training course. We thought we'd put out um, some of the more useful parts as blog posts in the meantime. Um, so watch this space for a comprehensive training course on Appendix FM in due course. And those are available on the blog um, in the meantime. Right, moving on to a few e-law, EU law issues, we've got um, an interesting, um, unsurprising, I think, tribunal case called um, Kovakevich, I think, Kovakevich, um, British citizen, Article 21, TFEU, Croatia, 2018, UKUT 273 IAC. Now, this one, essentially, and to cut a long story short, um, this is somebody who is a dual national of the UK and another EU country, but had never exercised their EU free movement rights. And in the end, the tribunal basically concludes this is much more a McCarthy-type situation, for those who know their EU case law, than a um, Loons situation. McCarthy is a slightly older case now um, where somebody in pretty much exactly this kind of situation um, didn't qualify for free movement rights for their family members. Loons was a follow-up saying, look, you don't need to want, you, you don't want to interpret McCarthy too narrowly and where somebody has actually made use of their free movement rights and then they can retain um, access to, to free movement rights for family members and so on and um, this one is held very much to be a McCarthy situation so it's not undermining the later Loon's case or anything like that it's simply applying EU law to, to the facts of the case. There's another EU law tribunal case to mention this one called Gauswami Retained Rights of Residents Job Seekers India 2018 UKUT 275 IAC and essentially, um, this is a case where the Home Office had been trying to rely on a very narrow definition of the word worker in the um, immigration regulations, the immigration EEA regulations. And the upper tribunal um, didn't agree with the Home Office, held that the term worker um, means that rights of residence can be retained by non-EEA nationals if they divorce their EEA spouse, and that includes job seekers. So the Home Office had been trying to sort of draw some sort of distinction between workers and job seekers, which... Um, does there is a distinction drawn in the regulations, but if you know your EU law, um, job seekers is a sort of subcategory, in fact, of, of workers, and so job seekers are included within that term worker. And it's quite an important case because somebody who gives up work during their marriage and gets divorced will still be able to live lawfully in the UK while they're looking for a job, essentially. And the tribunal was pretty unimpressed, I think it would be fair to say, with the Home Office arguments in this case, and pointed out that the Home Office interpretation would produce not just arbitrary and unjustified results, but arguably perverse ones and results which discriminated against women as well. So good decision there and a good outcome for that particular um, for that particular appellant. We've got a blog post by um, Ian Halliday looking at what no deal in the event of um, Brexit actually happening um, would mean for EU citizens. And this is a kind of moving target because it, it, it's difficult for us to keep this stuff up to date because there are always little drips and drabs of information coming out. So we try to periodically revisit and, and put out new information if it's become available. And I think, to be fair, since Ian's um, post at the very end of August, um, we've had further negotiations in September and Theresa May has actually out loud said, look, the, the rights of the three million plus EU citizens in the UK will be guaranteed even in the event of no deal. 
But it's one thing saying people get to stay. It's another thing saying what are the terms and conditions under which they get to stay and also what is the legal mechanism for that. So at the moment, Section 2 of the European Withdrawal Act 2018, which is now law, basically preserves the Immigration EA Regulations 2016 in the event of no deal. So it means that um, overnight EU citizens wouldn't become unlawful. Their position is protected in the meantime. What it would mean, though, is that their position could be modified over time by the UK government unilaterally because there'd be no agreement with the EU to preserve those rights. It seems to us extremely unlikely that's going to happen in the short term. It also seems extremely unlikely that the Home Office would start to go back on or undo all of the work it's done on on issuing basically what they're calling settled status, but which immigration lawyers know as um, indefinitely to remain to the EU citizens and the, the simplified application process that's been trialled and all this kind of thing. So it, it seems very likely that if no deal does happen, um, that basically the Home Office is going to plough on with its plans, um, existing plans as they stand today. Right, quick mention for an update to the Surinder Singh post that we um, occasionally update. It's a pretty detailed one on the whole Surinder Singh route, which is where you're a British citizen, go to an EU country, and then you're allowed to return to the UK later with family members under EU law. And it's a way of not having to necessarily meet the full requirements of the, the UK immigration rules. Some people do this accidentally, some people do this deliberately, um, the Home Office doesn't like it, um, so we periodically we update the post and go over what the latest position is. So I'm not going to go over the details, but um, it's there, we've updated it. Finally, I'm going to wrap things up with three trafficking cases. Um, first of these is CP Vietnam reference 2018 EWHC2122admin. And this is a particularly awful example, really, of disgraceful treatment of a, a trafficking victim by the Home Office. Decision makers repeatedly ignored evidence that the claimant might have been a victim of trafficking, which led to him falling back into the hands of his traffickers, who then coerced him into cannabis production. And then, shockingly, even after his arrest and conviction, the Home Office detained him, tried to deport him because he had committed a a drugs offence, and he was detained for 70 days until the High Court forced the Home Office to release him. So particularly bad. Um, Happily, he does get some recompense, and the judge finds the entire period of detention to be unlawful, and obviously compensation was going to be um, ordered, damages were going to be ordered in that case. Okay, second one is H, and this is 2018 EWHC2191 admin. And this case doesn't succeed, although I think it's important to bear in mind that In fact, before the substantive hearing, the defendant, the Home Office, had withdrawn the decision to certify the asylum claim as being manifestly unfounded and had accepted that the claimant had been unlawfully detained for a 12-month period. So H had actually already achieved most of the remedies sought in the judicial review at the outset. The remaining issues went forward to the hearing and um, failed, unfortunately. And essentially, the, the judge declined to get involved in... Um, or, or to, to pronounce judgment, shall we say, in um, an allegation that there were systematic failings at the Home Office in the treatment of trafficking victims, um, that the Home Office was failing in um, Rule 34 and 35 of the Detention Centre rules and not being used to attempt to identify victims of trafficking as well as victims of torture, um, and so on. So it, it's not a, a great outcome at a sort of a general level, although bear in mind that the particular claimant in that case had pretty much achieved what um, the main things that they'd wanted to achieve personally in their litigation already. 
Right, the third case to end on is GS, and this one is 2018 EWCA CRIM1824. And the observant amongst you will detect that this is a criminal division case in the Court of Appeal. Now, this appellant GS was convicted in 2007 of smuggling a large amount of cocaine into the United Kingdom and sentenced to nine years and seven months imprisonment, which is obviously a very substantial prison sentence. In a later asylum appeal, the first tier tribunal had found that she was a victim of trafficking. The competent authority, the Home Office body charged with recognising victims of trafficking, had come to the same conclusion. So GS sought to appeal her conviction and asked for a time extension of nine years for leave um, to appeal. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to rely on the statutory trafficking defence in Section 45 of the Modern Slavery Act 2015 because it doesn't have retrospective effect. Now, the Court of Appeal recognises in this case that um, it it would be right to extend time in these kinds of cases um, and also that um, the the, the test for substantial injustice is met if the conviction isn't allowed to be challenged because um, a conviction of that nature will really affect your immigration um, status later. However, on the particular facts of the case, the Court of Appeal declined to quash the conviction because it concluded that on those facts, even today, a prosecutor could reasonably conclude that prosecution was in the public interest. But, you know, the silver lining here is that the judgment suggests that there is merit in an out-of-time criminal appeal made by people who've been recognised as trafficking victims after their conviction. Okay, so that wraps it up for this month. I hope that's been helpful and I'll be back next month. Goodbye.